0: All right, welcome everybody. Uh, Good to see you. Today, if you read chapter 8, which was the main chapter for today, you probably are confused. It's a hard chapter. It really is. (laughs) Daniel thought so too. That's right, he did. But we're going to try to unscrew the inscrutable here today, so... But it isn't, and this is going to sound really probably silly, but it isn't that difficult. But it is. But it isn't that difficult once you do two things. So that's what I want to try to do at the beginning. I've written a bunch of stuff on the board simply for the purposes of trying to, to uh, make it as clear as we possibly can. I draw your attention, if you are following uh, this in the notes that I gave you, on page 10... Just a couple of introductory comments about page, uh, about this uh, using page 10. Uh, it's the section you can see it, Roman numeral 3, the prophetic history of Israel. Now, let's just re-anchor ourselves for a moment in terms of the big picture of Daniel, okay? The first seven chapters of Daniel are basically interpreting dreams. Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and Daniel's dreams. And from those, as they interpret interpreted, it's, it's really clear, the history of the Gentile world is going to be a history of four great world kingdoms, with the fourth kingdom being in two phases. And that second phase is dealing with the end times. And in all divisions that are interpreted, you know that it is the kingdom of God that triumphs. Chapter two: The stone cut without human hands is going to crush the Gentile world empires. Chapter seven, We learn who that stone cut without human hands is. It's the Son of Man. It's Jesus. It's a Messiah, and He will usher in the kingdom of God. Those, verse, uh, those chapters, excuse me, were written in Aramaic, and, and I hope you remember some of this, but they are the, that is the language of the empires. That's the language of the people. And so that makes sense. If Daniel is laying out the framework for Gentile world history, it would be in the language of the day. Now chapter 8, it switches to Hebrew. Because chapter 8 begins the discussion, if you want to put it this way, which is how I think it's very helpful. Well, how do the Jews fit into all this? What's their part in this plan? So in chapter 8, um, you begin, and this becomes so clear as we move into chapter 9 and chapter 10, now the singular focus isn't on all that's happening in Gentile world history. The singular focus is what's going to happen to the Jews. Because remember, Daniel is in exile. He's part of the exiles that Nebuchadnezzar had taken. And then when the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians, Daniel's still there. He spends 70 years, most of his life in that part of the world. And so the question he has, and the question the exiles would have had, is, how do we fit into all this stuff? And so chapter eight begins to answer that question, and then next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll deal with chapter nine, which becomes very specific. And I'll just wait till then. All right, now let's. There's just some introductory comments, much of which is review. Are you with me? Is that? Do I need to clarify anything? It's just a kind of get the big picture, get the big forest, now let's go down and look at some of the trees. I don't know, does that metaphor work? I think it does. But So chapter 8, the first part, tells this uh, again, this is, a, this is a dream that Daniel has. Uh, Daniel has this dream, and it's a dream of a goat, uh, excuse me, a ram, and a goat. It's a vision. He's in Susa, which is the capital the uh, winter capital of the, uh, of the Persian Empire. If you, it tells us that in, in verse 2. If you have your map, and this is all I want to, if you're just interested, on page 24, you can find Susa. If you find the Tigris and Euphrates River, and you see the name Sumeria, just go a little bit to the south of the A, and you see Susa. You find it? Some of you, you're not sure. Again, it's really very very fine print. Okay, it is. It's very, very fine print. But if if um, mm-hmm. if you if you find well, let's do it another way. Find Babylonia, and the A in Babylonia. Just go a little bit to the to the northeast, oh. and you'll see Susa. It's right along the river. It's right on the river. Well, all that. All, all the importance of that, and it isn't that significant. If you can't find it, don't worry about it. But Susa is the capital of the, um, of the, uh, of the Persian Empire, and, and Daniel is serving the Persian Empire. So he tells us that. And he tells us this vision of a ram that has two horns, and then of a goat that is rapidly coming out of the west and knocks him over. And so what we're going to see here in a minute, and they're the, the really important, this is, this is where it helps you to get the understanding of what's going on. In verses 3 and 4 is the, the issue of the ram, and it will tell us in verse 20, as the angel Gabriel interprets this for Daniel, this is Persia. And then he says, then a goat r- rapidly moving with his big horn smashes into the ram, not to verse 21 and 22 tells us that's Greece now men just think about this for a minute this is a hundred almost 200 almost 200 years before the event occurred when Alexander the Great conquered the Medo-Persian Empire 200 years before that this angel Gabriel interpreting this dream tells you Medo-Persia is going to be conquered by the Greeks. I mean, there is prophecy being very, very specific. And so what I'm telling you is, as we read this, verse 3 and 4 describes the ram, and verse 5 through 8 describes the goat racing out of the east. And then when the angel interprets it in verse 20 through 22, it tells us who it is. It's Medo-Persia being conquered by the Greeks. Now that, that, that should, it does for me, that should build your confidence in the trustworthiness of this book. Two hundred years before this major event in human history occurred, it's being prophesied by God through Daniel, his prophet. Now I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, and don't, <laughs> but that's just you know that is really that is really really an important chapter for us to build our confidence in the trustworthiness of the Word of God. He's in control. Yeah. About Gabriel? Gabriel, huh? Yes. He's the angel. Uh, he's, okay. the he's the one. He will. In, we'll, we'll read about him in a minute. He will be interpreting this dream for Daniel. Okay. All right, now that's the overview. Some of the rest of this I'll get to in just a minute. But I, Once you get this, what I just went over here, and you so, say, okay, now I think I know what's going on. <laughs> but it is hard because these bizarre descriptions of these animals and so on. So are you ready? Did I give you enough here to get anchored? <laughs> okay. Where does it mention Gabriel in here? Coming up, yeah, coming up in the chapter on verse 16. Okay. All right. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, this would be about 539, um, the king of the vision, uh, the king, the vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one I previously mentioned. Chapter 7. And I looked in the vision. It came about while I was looking. I was in the citadel of Susa and in the province of Elam. And I looked at the vision. And I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. It's a man-made canal that flows out of the Euphrates River. That's all that means. Then I lifted my gaze and looked. And behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in the front of the canal. Now the two horns were long. One was longer than the other. That's Persia. Conquers media. We'll learn that in a minute. And I saw the ram budding westward, northward, southward, and on other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone who could rescue from his power, but he was as pleased as magnified himself. This is Cyrus the Great conquering the known world. Go to the map on page 24. Now, what I'd like you to do is turn the page and go over to verse, uh, verse 20. As Daniel is hearing Gabriel giving the interpretation of this dream, look what the angel tells him in verse 20. The ram which you saw with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. It's the Medo Persian Empire. Now, granted, if we didn't have this information, we could probably still figure it out, but the angel is explicitly telling us who it is. Are you with me? Say yes or say no. Yeah, Are you was, with me? Yeah. I just want to yeah. make sure. Yes. Woody. Okay. Well, first, I don't know how, know how anybody can read this by themselves and understand it. You know, basically, I, I was lost. I understand. But um, That's why you're coming to this class. <laughs> yes, but he said, I was terrified. In 17, he said, I was terrified and felt prostrate. Son of man, he said to me. Son of man... All right, now, you're, you're getting a little ahead of us, but that's okay. That is also a title that is used, It's you see it in the book of Ezekiel, I'm just using another example, where an angel who addresses, like Ezekiel or Daniel, it's the name of a prophetic person, a person is so prof- who is prophetically speaking for God. And so Jesus, the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man, prophetically speaks for his Father. That's the only parallel there. But that's a great question. That is a really good question. I mean, it's a good observation because you know what Son of Man stands for from chapter 7. So, I mean, that's really, I'm glad you asked that. That's a really good question. All right, now, let's continue going back to the earlier part of the chapter to verse 5 and following. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west, over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had two thorn, horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, rushed at him as a mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and raged at him, struck the ram, shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground, trampled him, and there was none to rescue the ram from its power. Now go over to verse twenty one and twenty two, and the shaggy this is Gabriel telling Daniel, and the shaggy dog represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king now that can there's, there's only one person that can apply to who is it Alexander, Alexander, Alexander the Great, the first king of a united Greece. 'Cause the Greeks the Greeks had independent city states. You know, Athens was one of them, Sparta, Corinth, and they were independent city states until Alexander the Great, when he forced them all to come together by military power. So it's we indisputably we know who this is. Mm-hmm. And so with what it's not ta- and that just in number verse twenty-two for a minute, and the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent the four kings who arise from his nation although not with his power. All right, now what is that telling us? So let, let me let me take this, if you can read this, I hope you can. Let me take the mess I've written up here. And this I mean, this is just absolutely, this is absolutely amazing, realizing that this occurred, this was written 200 years before the event occurred. We know this, that in about 331 B.C., Alexander the Great has conquered and brought all of the Greek kingdoms together, has moved into Turkey, and has an express purpose of conquering the Persian Empire. And in 331 BC, he has the first victory, and about a year and a half later has the second victory. Hunts King Darius down, kills him. And he unites his empire from Greece all the way over to the Hindustan Mountains in India. That's his empire. And he does it from 330 until 325, he conquered the whole world. So how many years is that? Five, About 24 five or six years, oh, mm-hmm. he conquers the whole known world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, he goes to Babylon to rest and recuperate and he dies of malaria in 323 BC. And his, as soon as he's dead, his four generals divide his empire. So what did we just read? That Four of the kings then replace them. Mm-hmm. And he's died. he dies in 323 B.C. And these four kings, this guy, Seleucus, gets Syria, Ptolemy gets Egypt, and these two are sort of minor. They just divide up the rest of the part. The real action is going to occur with these two. So all I'm trying to drive home, using the historical specifics that we know, is this, again, it's, it's absolutely profound and amazing, the specific nature of this prophecy. And again, I mean, I, this is part of the application in taking this away. When you're done studying a chapter like this, you, could, you should be able to say, my God is amazing. He is the sovereign Lord of history. Control. And he is he is he is declaring what is going to happen with such specific detail that you can't miss it. There isn't any ambiguity in this. You what ambiguity means lack of clarity. We know exactly who this is. And so Daniel is seeing this, and I mean it is perplexing to him. But as the angel starts to interpret it, he starts to understand it. Now. I want to get to this question in a minute, but this is going to be the question that we want to answer if we have. I think we can get it done before we leave today. Why is this so important to the Jews? So I I want to get to that in just a minute. All right, now I'm trying to take this slowly but quickly. (laughs) But I'm I'm trying to make the connection so that it is as clear as I can possibly make it for you. So we are now to verse 8 with the connections in the later part of the chapter. So, are you with me? Do you have any questions? We know who the ram is. We know who the goat is. Now, the the prophecy is taken another step further. Here's where it gets a little difficult, but it isn't that difficult once you understand what's going on. All right, so everybody's with me. Verse 8. Actually, I should start in verse 7. Excuse me. After this, I kept looking in the night to Behold, a fourth beast, dreadful. Ugh. I'm reading from verse... I'm reading from chapter 7. No wonder I wasn't <laughs> sure where I was. Um, verse 8 is, is where I want to go. Then the male goat... Okay, now you know who that is. That's Alexander the Great. Magnified himself exceedingly. Was Alexander the Great like that? Oh my goodness. He conquered so many cities, so many towns, and he named dozens of them Alexandria. The most famous one that you probably have heard of is the one that was on the Nile Delta in Egypt. It was one of the greatest cities in the ancient world, totally built by Alexander the Great, and he named it after himself. Oh, he's in his thirties. When he begins, um, when he begins the conquest, um, he is 20, 20, yeah, 27, Yeah, years old. I mean, it's just he. He was just. Uh, he was a, He was an incredibly brilliant tactician in military activities. I mean, he was just. Um, he was like a. He was like a genius. He. He could perceive almost instantaneously the major weakness of his enemy and know how to leverage that weakness for a great victory. Because he took on, uh, when he makes a decision to try to conquer Persia, he takes on the most powerful country in the world. And yet this, this small little army that he starts out with and he then gains a lot of support through it, they are just able to they are able to mull over the greek or the persian army it, it's absolutely amazing how he does that mm. and as the bible says here you know he 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 goes across the surface of the earth without his feet touching the ground now well, that's metaphorical language yeah. just speed so yeah. he's so fast and i you know I, I have all this on powerpoint slides but i have a i have a slide that shows how the greek armies organized themselves it's what is called a phalanx, and they would have these, um, they would line up, this, the infantry would line up in really, really tight formation, and they would have, they're called pikes. They would have these really, really, really long spears. I and mean, you all know what a spear is, but these things were like 20, 25 feet long, and they would line up in a tight line, and then they would go into battle. They'd put the, spike, the pikes down. And so as the enemy is charging to you, they're not facing an infantry with a bunch of swords. They're facing this very, very tight, they call it phalanx, and with these long pikes, and I mean, it's almost, how can we possibly defeat them? And they couldn't. And so Alexander just used this in every formation in a devastating way. The Persian and then some of the others he conquered had never seen a military formation like this, and they didn't know how to react to it. And he just mowed over. And he did, he did it with such with such speed, because again he's able to conquer and kill with devastating consequences every one of his enemies. And as I mentioned earlier, the king of Persia at that time is Darius Darius the fifth or whatever his title was. I forget whatever his number was. But anyway, he realizes he's losing, so he runs. And he runs up into the Hindustan Mountains. And Alexander, I mean, I'd have kind of said, I'll let him go. He's defeated. But he's said, oh, I'm going to hunt him down. And he hunts him down and has him murdered. So there is no living survivor. And then he just keeps going and goes all the way to the Hindustan Mountain. On the other side, he's at the Ganges River in India. And he, his, his teacher, Aristotle, said, go, keep going to the east and you'll reach the end of the world. And he said, I want to reach the end of the world. And you, you may have heard this story, what did his soldiers say? We don't want to go any further. We want to go back home to our families. And it is said, literally, Alexander started to cry, please go with me, and they said no. So Alexander couldn't go any farther. But to go to the Ganges River in India, I mean, I don't know if you know the geography of this, to go from Greece to the game—that's incredible amount of territory in a very short period of time—and so he's reconciled to that, and so he takes his men back to Babylonia, which, of course, on the Euphrates River, and settles down there. And then he—we—it is a mystery why he died. There's a lot of mystery. Some suggest he died of malaria. Some suggest he was assassinated. Some suggest he died of heart disease uh, because he pushed himself. All he was young, he pushed himself and he went into these long, drunken stupors between battles. Uh, I mean, he's, he's, um, he's a perplexing individual, but as soon as he accomplished what God wanted him to accomplish, mm-hmm. he dies. If I remember something, didn't Jim, like the city of Tyre, he was going to rebuild yes. the city. He was going to but he died before that because he's it's still barren today because Jesus said or the Bible says it'd never be rebuilt again. And he was going to rebuild that city. Well, how he conquered Tyre, Tyre's up in the north and what today yeah. would be Lebanon. He built this huge, it's a huge gateway across the sea to get to it. Mm-hmm. And he absolutely devastated the city. And that city has that particular part has never been rebuilt. Yeah. There's a great story about Alexander II. Because Alexander then went from Tyre down through Palestine over into Egypt. And as he was in, the, this is what Josephus tells us, he went up to Temple Mount. Now this is still, the, the Jews are back in, from their exile, they rebuilt the temple and all of that. And he, he is met by the high priest. And he talks to the high priest about the living God. There's no way he's converted or anything like this. But Alexander made a decision, I'm going to treat the Jews with favor, which he did. Under Alexander's brief rule, the Jewish people are treated very favorably. Um, and that whether that's apocryphal or not, it's an interesting story, because we do know how he, he treated the Jews very well. They, they, very, they had favor with him. But then when his when he he dies and his generals take over, then that's going to change. I want to talk about that in just a minute because that's what the rest of the text is about. Now, we got off on a long bunny trail there. But it's really, this is a really fascinating period of history because you have this massive empire, the Persian, which seemed impregnable. And roaring out of the West is this tiny little general from Macedonia who conquers it in a very short period of time. And hunts down the king and murders him. And so it just seems like nobody can stop Alexander the Great. And he had a vision, and this is this is absolutely true. He had a vision to make the entire world Greek. The uniting force of the of the world will be Greek. And so wherever he went, he built Greek temples, he built Greek cities, and that that is something the Roman Empire takes over. That Roman Empire has the same vision. But it's Rome, not Greek. What is their God in the Greek temple? Zeus. Zeus. Zeus is a chief god. It's Z-E-U-S. many, right. many gods. Hmm? Well, how do you spell that? Z-E-U-S. Z-E-U-S. <clears throat> oh. Okay, now... Wasn't this before, like, some of the Greek philosophers and they started bringing democracy? I know Alexander, he, he wasn't spreading democracy. No. <laughs> he, but he did have a lot but, of principles of d- some, yeah. you know, human rights and some right. type of, you know, rule by, you know, some power within the people and stuff like that. Well, yes, the... Alexander the Great when his father Philip of Macedon, he wanted his son, he wanted his son to be tutored in the Greek way of thinking. Because Macedonia is to the north of the Greek. Macedonians are not Greeks, but Macedonians conquered the Greeks. And his father, Philip, said, I'm gonna hire the best tutor is that's available to tutor my son. Who is his tutor? Aristotle. Aristotle. Is Aristotle is the philosopher trained under Plato. And so I mean that's a very important piece of information because it helps us to understand why Alexander said the unifying factor of the world is now going to be the Greek way of life. And that's is, that's where we're going to get here in just a minute because what, what these generals are going to do is try to force the Jews, Ptolemy and Seleucus force the Jews to become Greeks and they're not going to want to become Greeks and that's where we're headed in just a minute. I'm getting a little ahead of the story. But what what is really important here, man, and this I hope is coming across, that what the Bible is saying is going to occur prophetically is exactly what happened. And then it's it's how do the people of God react to that? And, and that's what we're going to see in just a, a, a couple of minutes. Now, verse... verse um, Nine, then, becomes kind of difficult. And out of one of them, who's the them? The four generals. generals. Came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land, And he grew up to the host of heaven, caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to earth and trampled them down. He magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host, removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. In account of this transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and will fling the truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Verse 14, let me go down. He said to me, for 2300 evenings and mornings... The holy grace um, will be properly restored. Okay, what is going on here? I'll, I'll go to verse 13 in just a minute. Now, this is hard, and I'm sure, Woody, this is one of the things when you read this, well, I'm just giving up. I have no idea what's going on here. All right, it isn't difficult once you understand what's going on. So let me, let me go to this now, okay? 323, Alexander died. His empire is divided into two, three parts. These are the two keys. Seleucus, which gets Syria, General Seleucus, Syria and everything to the east. Ptolemy gets Egypt. Okay? Now, if you just know anything basically about geography, what land is between Syria and Egypt? Israel. Israel. Israel is the bridge that connects those two. And if these two generals, they're Greek generals, they're imposing the Greek way of life on everything they now rule. What do you think these two generals are going to fight over? Israel. <laughs> because that's the bridge. Whoever controls Israel, you know, Judah or whatever, it was called a lot of things, today. Yehud was its name, as a, as a province of the Persian Empire, but whatever you're going to call it, He who controls this strip of land controls access to three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. You control access to all three of those continents, which may be one of the reasons why God made that the promised land. It's the most important piece of real estate on planet Earth because of its vitality as a connection. So these two guys are fighting constantly over that bridge of land. Now we just read that out of one of these generals comes a small little horn. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. And from 174 until 165, this is all B.C., he rules Israel. And it tells us, and you read about it, he Uh, He goes to the east, he goes to the south, he goes into the beautiful land. Beautiful land is what? Israel. And it tells us that he magnifies himself in verse uh, 11 and removes the regular sacrifice from the sanctuary. Now, history tells us this. What Antiochus Epiphanes did is he invaded Israel went to Jerusalem, slaughtered 40,000 Jews, conquered Temple Mount, and built an altar to Zeus on the place where the altar of the Holy Holies was and offered a pig. Why would he offer a pig? Because have that's non-kosher. non-kosher that, was, that was probably the most offensive thing you could do to the Jews. At the center of their worship of Yahweh, You put an altar to Zeus and you offer a pig on it. What is Antiochus Epiphanes trying to do? Force the Jews to become Greeks. You must give up your whole way of life and become like everyone else's. And I'm going to force you to do it. Now, if you read about this, it says, verse 13... Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one of the particular one speaking. How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice supply and the transgression cause horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host host of the Jews to be trampled? Answer, verse 14 2300 days. From 171 till 165, Antiochus Epiphanes ruled Temple Mount. Now, they, they still hold that, don't they? That's is that the part where the Israels guarded. They can't go up there. Today? Yeah. Uh, well, what were you Yes, to? the. Yes, that. the. Uh, but, oh, Woody, Ms. Um, Bunnings, what you're asking. Now, the, 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 the Syrians don't hold Temple Mount today. The Jews uh, in 1967 conquered it. But by agreement, Jews are not allowed to go up on Temple Mount worship. That is still true today. All right, now, here's this I kind of think you know. 2300, it's amazing the prophecy here. It's exactly how long Antiochus Epiphanes ruled in Jerusalem. How did that end? Do you ever hear of the Maccabees? Yeah. Maccabean yeah. revolt? Uh-huh. Well, in. In this period, when Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucids are in this area, there was one father. He was a high priest. His name was Maccabeus. And he says, I am not going to do this. I am not going to bow my knee to Zeus, and I'm not going to participate in these sacrifices. So he went into the hills, and he and his sons organized a revolt against the Seleucids. And that's called the Maccabean Revolt. And on December the 25th, 165 BC, Judas Maccabees liberated Temple Mount from the Seleucids and set up the worship of God, the sacrificial system again, tore down all that stuff to Zeus. How do the Jews celebrate that event? It's you know, you just don't know you know. It's Hanukkah. Hanukkah, Hanukkah is the celebration of the Jews by the Jews of the liberation of Temple Mount from the Seleucids, from Antiochus Epiphanes. So, I mean, it's that there again, I mean, the specific nature of this prophecy, this is, that's 165 BC that happens, and this prophecy is occurring in 550. Isn't that amazing? And so, you, and this is a, this is a great victorious time in, in the history of Israel. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't last very long. But it, they are able to liberate the, the the Jewish people in Judah from the tyranny of this crazy man, Antiochus Epiphany. For skeptics, how was the timing of the writings documented, and proven that they really written 150 years ago? Well, see, you know. When I read verse 1, Daniel's telling me exactly when he saw this vision and exactly when it's interpreted. But if you're a critic of the Bible and don't believe there is such a thing as prophecy, you're going to say, well, this can't be true. Nobody can make a prophecy like that. So therefore, it had to be written, not by Daniel, but to somebody who wanted to try to have the authority of Daniel, oh, about 100 B.C. or so so they're recording history that is not i mean daniel is being very very specific he we know exactly the date that he got this place telling us in verse one but if you're a skeptic a critic of the bible anti-supernatural don't believe in prophecy then you got to make up another story this can't be prophecy so the only way you can explain it is this was written after the event occurred sure and that's what I, i know that's where they would go I'm wondering about, do we have a a lot of history, the Bible was passed out verbal. Do we have any writings that were carbon dated or anything like that? Now some of it, I'm I'm pushing back a little bit, some of it was written down by oral Patricia, but this is an oral tradition. This was written by Daniel and preserved as written by Daniel. As was Jeremiah's prophecy, so there, as, there, was, there, as was Ezekiel's prophecy. There can be original documents. And are, are there known original documents? Well, there are, there are no original, the original of Daniel's letter we don't have, but we have very, very early copies of it. Now, in addition, and this, and I don't know if this is answering your question or making any, any uh, further comment on what you're asking, but the extra biblical. Material of this period of time is prolific. We have a lot of extra biblical material validating all of this. I mean, there's no question about this happening. So you can you can scientifically go back and say this is why. This really was written when it was written. Absolutely, it wasn't ghost written hundred or two hundred. Well, years. Well, I mean, yeah. You know, I can't show you something that has Daniel's signature on it. And we know (laughs) it. but but it's uh, well yeah, I mean it's it's it is not difficult to validate this. But if you are a thoroughgoing skeptic of scripture and have an anti supernatural bias, then you're gonna say, Well, I still don't believe that. That's still not true. Nobody makes prophecy. That's the adamant position of the critic. Which is, I think, silly, but that is that is what they hold to. So they have to explain it away, and they explain it away by saying this was written after the events occurred. What? Did they text them back then either? Did they what? Text them. <laughs> text them? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, seriously, the, why did they remove the Maccabees from the Bible, from the Apocrypha? Uh, well, they didn't remove it. The 1st the, the and 2nd Maccabees are two history books. They were never considered to be a part of Scripture. Later in history, about the time of Trent in the 1560s, uh, they said this is, there are 15 of them, these two books are apocryphal books that we want to include in the canon. But the 1st and 2nd Maccabees were never considered to be a part of Scripture. They're very valid historical books, particularly First Second Maccabees is a little stranger than First Maccabees, but it's it's valid historical material that helps us. But there's no evidence, nor has there been any acceptance that they are inspired books. You know what I mean by that, don't you? As we think yeah, this, okay? The Holy Spirit, the Word of God. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Catholic Bible has a Book of Maccabees. It's, they have it at the end. They have the fifteen. They're called yeah. the Apocrypha. They have fifteen yeah. books. They do. You're correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew that I'll get saved from all that, but I mean I knew that from reading back in those days Mm -hmm. Yep What do you think God's reason of showing Daniel the prophecy was? Well, since I'm not God I don't know if I can answer that but I think the answer is and that's part of what I want to get to before we're done today this change from the, the Greeks replacing the Persians is going to have profound influence on the Jews. Because as Seleucus and Ptolemy and so on, as they try to force the Jews to become Greeks, it forces the Jews to dig their heels deep more deeply in, we are going to remain people of the true God. And the importance of Torah, the importance of the Old Testament text, becomes central to them. They truly become people of the book. So what to maintain their distinctiveness. That's the importance of this. Daniel is, is, because as the exiles are coming back and they read this and see this stuff unfolding, they, they have to make a choice. Are we going to become Greeks or are we going to hold to our belief in the one true only God as revealed in Scripture. is Torah, that's the law. And they make the decision Torah is going to remain the center of what we are. And that's going to give birth to Pharisaism. That's going to give birth to the Pharisees because the Pharisees are born, they're called the Hasidim, they're born during this period of time to keep the people focused on the law, which is a very good thing. But 400 years later, when Jesus Christ shows up, what has happened to the Pharisees? They have become the legalists. They have become. They have been so rigid in this that they they're, they have constructed a legalistic approach to God, which is not what He intended at all. So, for the for the for the Jewish people and the history of the Jewish people, this event of Alexander conquering this part of the world is extremely important. And this is what is going to lead to chapter nine, which we'll look at next week, I think, if we. Get chapter eight done. Now I'm. I'm, We got on some bunny trails here, but once you get the historical information of what is really going on here, this is a remarkable chapter of the Bible. It really is. So I'm going to ask, as I've asked now three or four times, are you with me? Are are you lost, or are you with me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So, um, I lost my place. Okay. so then verse 14, which is where we, we, we ended, it, that and it's just, again, it's amazing how specific it is. This is exactly the amount of 2,300 days is exactly the number of days that Antiochus Epiphanes ruled in Jerusalem. And as I mentioned, that brings... Okay, now, verse 15. And it came about that when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, sought to understand it, behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man, and I heard the voice of the man from the banks of the Euphrates. That's that little canal where Dan is standing, and he called out and said, "Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision." Who's Gabriel? An angel. He's an angel identified several times throughout the Bible. Most prominently, what did Gabriel do? He announced what we call the Annunciation. He announced, you, Mary, are pregnant with the Messiah. So Gabriel's a really important guy Mm -hmm. as an angel. Verse 17, so it came near to where I was standing, and when he came to frightened, I fell on my face. And this is back to what Woody had said. Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Mm -hmm. Now that's a very important phrase as we look at verse 23 through 25 in just a little bit. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright and By him, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Okay, now we already read this. The ram which you saw with two horns represents the kings of and persia Verse 21, shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between it is their first king. We already know that's Alexander. Verse 22, and the broken horn and the four horns that arose in place represent the four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Those four kings don't even match the power singularly of Alexander the Great. That's kind of obvious, but he's stating it. Now, verse 23 uh, I think we can get this covered. And if you look in your notes how I tried to to write this, this becomes important for connecting this to what the angel tells him times of the end, the appointed time of the end, verse 17, verse 19. This is a theme that is consistent through the Old Testament and even to a degree in the New Testament. This Individual Antiochus Epiphanes prefigures. Do you understand what I mean by prefigures? If I use the word, is a type, is an illustration of. And I'm still not getting anybody's body language. Does that Before, make sense? Yeah. In other words, what Antiochus Epiphanes does and and carries out is prefiguring what this chief rebel at the end is going to do that the new testament calls the antichrist so do you follow what i'm saying Mm -hmm. let me let me put it another way because i think this is this is kind of an important theme for you and me to have in our minds in first john chapter two john says the spirit of antichrist is always been in the world And he is manifested throughout, I'm paraphrasing, throughout human history. But there is coming one at the end, the Antichrist, verse 18. So Antiochus Epiphanes represents that spirit of Antichrist. And the things that he does from 160, um, 171 until 165 in Jerusalem is identical is very close to what the Antichrist will do at the end, right before Jesus comes back. So if you're with me, in other words, the Bible is starting to encourage us to keep building on what will this person at the end look like? What will his character traits be as he defies the living God? So Antiochus Epiphanes prefigures that, that individual. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. So, what, and I, I, in your notes, I just left nine open spaces. Uh-huh. From verse 23 through 29, we will see nine character traits that Antiochus Epiphanes manifests. But as we look at the descriptions of this Antichrist, long after Antiochus Epiphanes has died, he is representing those same qualities and character traits. Yeah. And I think that's how the scriptures want us to understand this. All right. We have 10 minutes. Let's see if we can get it done. That's one character trait a minute with one minute left over. <laughs> and in the latter period of their rule, while the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. Two qualities, insolent and skilled in intrigue. He is a treacherous, skillful, deceptive ruler. Skillful and deceptive. Verse 24. And by his power, and excuse me, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will be powerful, but his power will come from someone else. Revelation chapter 13, verse 2 tells us it is the power of Satan. Now, who energizes the spirit of Antichrist in the world? That's a self-evident question. Satan always does that. So it's just telling us in verse 24 the third quality trait... He will be extremely powerful, but energized by satanic power. It was true of Antichus Epiphanes. It was true of the it will be true of the Antichrist. It was true of Adolf Hitler. It was true of Benito Mussolini. I mean you could every well anyway. Four. Middle of twenty-four, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree, and prosper and perform his will, will destroy mighty men and holy people. Antichrist Epiphanes, wherever he went, he destroyed. Antichrist, wherever he goes, he destroys. He is not a builder of civilization. He's a destroyer of civilization. He doesn't create order and stability. He creates chaos. And that is exactly what Antichrist Epiphanes did. That is exactly what the Antichrist did. And again, I keep remembering what John says in 1 John chapter 2. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world. Satan does not build stability and order. Satan creates chaos and disorder. I'm reading Rick Atkinson's great three-volume History of World War II. By the way, if you want the best history of World War II I've ever read is Rick Atkinson. It's fabulous. But I'm reminded of this grand vision of Adolf Hitler and the devastation, chaos, and disorder he brought to the world. It was a thousand-year-like that lasted 12 years. And it it didn't bring anything close to that. This is the destroyer. Verse 25. And through his shrewdness, characteristic number five, he will be shrewd. He will be conniving. He will be manipulative. He will be the master conniver and take his epiphanies with. And he will magnify himself in his heart. Number six. He will exalt himself. Revelation chapter 13 verse 5 says the beast, the Antichrist, will set up worship of himself. Continuing, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will slaughter people. Antiochus Epiphanes killed 40,000 Jews as he conquered Jerusalem. Antiochus Epiphanes, Antichrist will slaughter millions. Number eight, second to last clause of verse 25. He will even oppose the prince of princes. Who's that? The Lord Lord Jesus. It's the Messiah. It's one of his titles. Revelation 19, 19 says Antichrist will oppose Jesus Christ face to face. Finally, but he will be broken without human agency. Human will not bring antichrist down who will revelation nineteen nineteen. Jesus, jesus right the lamb of god will destroy him and cast him into the lake of fire so what i'm and we did it what i and we did it in less than 10 minutes when you take those nine quality traits that describe antichrist epiphanies it does not take a lot of imagination to see these are the descriptive quality traits of this little one that we read about in chapter 7 of Daniel, and what we are going to see unfold in the next couple of chapters the willful king, and then what the book of, of, of uh, the, the New Testament books refer to as the abominable one who desolates, the man of sin, etc. All right? I, I just can't believe we got this done. I yeah, didn't think funny. we'd do chapter 8. And even with the bunny trails and good questions. So. Take a deep breath, because we've covered a really a lot here, but it's it's been good. Are, are you with me? Do you have questions about it? Yes, Joel. The verse 26 maybe kind of answers the point that you were making I mean, when it says, keep the vision secret. I mean, so it wasn't like Daniel was out advertising this around the world. Right. Therefore, maybe it wasn't as, you know, wasn't circulated. At this point, at this point in history, that's right. That's right. That's right. So it's um, chapter 8 is beginning, what we'll see in the next several chapters before we finish the book of Daniel, it's beginning now to focus on the impact all these events are going to have on the Jewish people. And we learned just a little bit, this antique Epiphanes, this Seleucid ruler, is devastating for the Jewish people. But they overcome him. In, the, in what they do in celebrating Hanukkah but he prefigures this one at the end and there's just almost every expositor I know that I've read and studied over the years disagrees. this is like you see in a lot of different parts of scripture it's got a double fulfillment, it takes epiphany but the end and the angel said the time of the end, the appointed time of the end, Daniel keep thinking about how all this impacts your people now I want to set us up for next week. Chapter nine is got two parts to it. Part one is a prayer of Daniel. And it is a prayer that as you read through that prayer, I'd I'd like you to I'd like you to look and try to see if you can find a couple of really key words in the prayer. Because it tells us that Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. It tells us that in verse, verse 2. And he starts to see, and he's referring to the passage in Jeremiah 25, you will be in exile for 70 years. So Daniel takes out his Apple watch and looks and says, It's almost over. The 70-year period is almost over. And so immediately he starts to pray. And verse 3 on down until we really get almost to verse 19 is a prayer of Daniel. And it is a prayer in which he is being very personal and then he's praying on behalf of the nation. I'd like you as you read the prayer. What kind of a prayer is this? This Is a prayer of praise, of adoration, or a prayer of confession? And why is he praying it that way? And then, I don't know if we're going to get this far next week, then he he talks to Gabriel again. You'll see Gabriel show up in verse 21 and so on. And he says, I want to know what's going to happen for my people now. We're about ready to go back from the exile. And Gabriel's gonna answer the question very, very specifically. And he nails it down with years, and he talks about the Messiah. So verse 24 through 27 are some of the most important verses in the whole Bible. So we're gonna take our time with this. I'm suspecting that next week we're gonna spend a little bit, a significant perhaps, amount of time on the prayer, which I do want to do that. And then I really want to slow down as we look at verse 24 through 27. When Gabriel says to him, okay, here's what's destined for your people. Here's how the Jews fit into all this. And so it's, it's really great. It's wonderful stuff. So, All right? Thank you. All right, let me pray. I know we got to get going here. Father, we're thankful for this time. We've studied a very important chapter in your word, chapter 8. And it gives us... Uh, an amazing confidence that you're a God who knows the future you have a plan you're working that plan and it is important that we have our confidence and our trust in you you don't make mistakes and you use great powerful rulers for your purposes Alexander the Great we just read about the Lord we put confidence in you we're not to fear and be terrorized by the rulers that are a part of our world today we want We want to deal with them wisely and carefully as a nation, but, Lord, we are to fear you, not fear Vladimir Putin. We're not to fear Iran. We're to be wise in how we deal with them, but you are the one who is controlling history. You're accomplishing your purposes, and, Lord, we trust you in that. And we know that the next major event in your program is the return of your son for his church. We long for that. We look forward to that. And we have trust and confidence that you are going to accomplish the purposes you have. We're really excited because we're a part of that. We're going to be a part of what Jesus does when he returns. We're going to rule and reign with him. And we're going to be a part of the coming kingdom of God. That's exciting for us. It helps us to have the hope day in and day out to represent you well. Help us to do that in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week. Amen. Lord willing.